Welcome to Behind the Blade Podcast, episode 29, long time coming, on the heels of Blade Show 2018, on Grindin' Weekend. You guys are actually lucky that uh, we're here with you guys today, because otherwise we would be at the meet and greet over at North Star Trading Post. Which he is very gracious enough to not kill us as soon as he says it. Yeah, I <laughs> felt kind of bad about that. Sorry, yeah. Reed. Uh, Wait, he's got something really cool. I'm going to be told you about it. He has a sign-in post. I had to carve yeah. vehement into it oh, today. Oh, no, you did. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it, was, it was fun, but it was uh, actually, Reed and I just hung out while I did it, so it was okay. Right. Uh, sorry, let me, i got to finish bringing in the episode. Sorry, guys, we're finding our rhythm. So today, we are going to be covering in the history segment, the Western Knife Company. Of course, we're going to touch on knife news, which we have a lot to cover. We've been absent for a while. And a couple of tragedies have hit the knife community since the last time we've been on the air. Um, after that, we're actually going to skip Tech Tips this week because we're in the process of developing. Remember I told you guys we were going to come back with a vengeance. We're in the process of developing our first video-aided Tech Tips. And I can give you a teaser on that. We are going to cover flat grinding a knife. We're even going to show us some layout and stuff like that. So once we get the video stuff dialed in, we'll be good to go on that. After our vacuum that should be tech tips, we are going to be covering your Q&As, which you have so generously laid upon our page. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a flash with Knife News. This episode of Behind the Blade Podcast is brought to you by Todd Walensky at True Saber Knives. He is the mad scientist behind the grinder. And I tell you, the one thing that sets Todd's knives apart from everybody else is that ultra thin, ultra sharp edge. Knives are meant to cut. Todd makes knives that cut. My, actually, my mom carries one of his knives in the kitchen. I trust him that implicitly. No, uh, Todd's a phenomenal knife maker. He does a lot of classic designs, but I can tell you his edge geometry is nothing short of from the future. Go check him out, True Saber Limited, and join the Saber's Edge on Facebook. Jim, what are the letters and dashes that go before a Facebook group? I don't know. It's facebook.com slash groups slash True Saber LTD, I'm sure. You don't, not, have to say you, the I'm, search. you don't have to say the I'm sure part. Or type it in your URL. You don't do that either. So just type in that search bar, Saber's, Saber's Edge. Saber's Edge, yeah. And check out what Todd's got going on. Industry headlines from around the world. Brought to you by KnifeNews.com. Knife news for knife people. And we're back. Welcome to the show, everybody. Jim Stewart here also with Matt Martin, and we have one hell of a show for you guys today. At least we hope so, right? Yeah, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be awesome. We've got, we've got some great news for you guys but today. First, but first, what are you carrying, Jim? Oh! I know it's know been what? a while. It's been a while, and I forgot about this. Okay, so, as always by Mainstay, Victorinox Swiss Tool. There you go, mirror polished. Right, no one loves it. No one likes it. Yeah. Same joke. <laughs> but I use that. I use it every single day. You got something there that everybody seems to be liking these days. Everybody seems to be liking this beautiful Dan Tope TDC. It is. It looks like it's an eighth inch on the spine. It is made out of CPM 3V. It's got a flat grind to a bevel grind. Mine is all in black canvas micarta with black canvas pins. Is that black canvas? It's black canvas. I think it's just. Uh, I think it's just. It's either blasted or it's just a matte finish. Oh, he's got a cool finish on it though. Yeah, yep. it's real matte. Yeah, yep. it it's, it's almost sticky. It's almost. Yeah. It's almost like it had been. You know, you hear this? You can hear it. That's the grip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's super comfortable in the hand. It's it's a it's a really sharp knife, and actually, it's got some good. It's got some good grip in it for their last three fingers. 
I mean, it's uh, just the, just the shape in itself. It's very axe handily. Yes, yeah, you yeah. Know, that that back end of it. So if, so if you're a fan of those uh, those Moran style axe handily you know type of handles, this is which I am. I mean, this is this is a great knife. Yep, this is a great knife for you guys. It comes with a beautiful leather leather sheath. Got some nice lines. Got some nice lines yeah. on it. Uh, then I fit snugly inside of that, and I am just uh, satisfied as a uh, swine in feces. There you go. Well put. So, <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, Matt, good sir, what are you carrying? Oh, the use. I'm carrying a Swiss Army knife, Alox Pioneer, and a Sabenza 25. Uh, but what I didn't bring today for the show, I have been carrying a lot lately that's worth mentioning, is while at Blade Show, mm-hmm. I got to meet Dave Canterbury. Oh, nice. And he, nice. Was, he was staying in the hotel that we were staying at. Some of you guys may know Dave from like Dual Survival. He's got the Pathfinder School, lots of really good YouTube bushcraft resources. He mm-hmm. kind of focuses on, um, uh, what would I consider it? Like practical bushcraft, practical survival techniques. And he's right. real budget conscious when it comes to building your kit and stuff gotcha. like that. And he uh-huh. is a big proponent of make a lot of your own stuff. Well, mm-hmm. his shop does make some some cool knives. Now, I don't think Dave makes them himself. I think he contracts it out to the Pathfinder Knife Shop, I think mm-hmm. is what it's known as. Um, but in talking to Dave, I said, hey, what's a flagship model that uh, you have? Because I, I fangirled out. I'm not going to lie. I was like, <laughs> man, I'm such a Dave huge fan Yeah. So I took a picture <laughs> with him. And I've collected like two... Uh, Here's the line. Oh, I've you. collected like two autographs in my entire life, and Canterbury was one of them. I had him sign the box that I bought the knife that came in uh, and took a picture and all that stuff. So, yeah, I've been carrying that little Scandi Ground Scorpion, I believe. Scorpion mm-hmm. M. I don't think you showed it to me. I didn't yeah. show it to you? No. Oh, no, I don't think so. I'm You'll gonna, have to later. We'll do yeah. a review uh, in lieu of Tech Tips. One of these uh, here pretty soon. We'll do a video review. I've got the woods out at the uh, HQ, yes. so we'll go out there and do something with it. But it's a handy little knife, and I really like it. And I've been carrying it the last few days. I just didn't carry it today, but it's still worth talking about on there. So go check it out. Pathfinder Knife Shop Scorpion. And uh, you can just Google that, and you'll find it. But yeah, very cool knife. I really like it. Um, carbon steel, 90-degree spine, strikes a flint it does all that stuff i got mm-hmm. to my car to scales because i'm anti-wood handles but um, <laughs> yeah so that's about it as far as what i'm carrying so jim what Yo. do you have in the world of news in the world of news coming fresh hot off the 2018 blade show if maniago italy wins big at blade show 2018 if the for those of you guys who don't know i think you've got um what is it fox it's viper it's lion steel it's mercury it's it's a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a cottage industry of Italian knife makers making knives in a 200-ish dollar price range or some but, somehow I mean more. if you were to slap a higher price tag and put another you know an obscure maker's name you could charge buku bucks i mean mm-hmm. to me they can hang with riot and stuff like that i mean they're, yeah, they're they pretty can. pretty nice knives. well i mean and it's not the first time that they've won i remember i think it was um 2015's blade show or 2016's blade show um lion steel one blade of the blade of the year you know the same same kind of thing with their lock with their with their um it was a frame lock with a with a, with a lock little adjustable lock yeah thing, it'll i want i want to say it was the m1 SR one, SR one, could be SR one, yeah, could be SR one, yes, or it could be totally wrong. I don't know. They even make knives for DPX, yeah, yeah, they make DPX. Robert Young Pelton brand and stuff like that. Yeah, they do. It's pretty cool how they have that going on. So you have, what do you have? Was it Maniago? It was Maniago Fox in Maniago. Right, Fox Viper and Lion Steel and Mercury. But um, yeah, so I guess Maniago, Toledo, Spain, Laguiole, France, Seki City, Japan. Arguably the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Arguably. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. But here you have these kind of cottage industry, industry centers mm-hmm. where some fine cutlery comes out of it. It's yeah, kind of cool absolutely. that they do that. I think that's awesome. No, I think it's really cool. And uh, absolutely total props to these guys for putting on for putting on a, a good show and a good product. 
for sure, to be able to win this. So highly recommend you guys check this out. The uh, The article is on Knife News at knifenews.com, Knife News for Knife People. Bam. And, and, uh, and you should check that out. It's really cool. What else we got? We have something a little bit crappier, but not as crappy. We have New York Court of Appeals Ugh. upholds the 2017 Switchblade verdict. For those who do not know, a gentleman in New York was carrying an assisted opening knife. Now, we all know what assisted opening knives are. They are knives with a spring or a leaf spring of some kind that when you open the blade up part way through momentum, a spring takes over the action and, clo- and, and opens the knife all the way. Slightly, I wouldn't even say faster than like any ZT. It's not nope. faster. It just takes less effort. Right. And you still have to overcome the bias to stay closed. Right. So there's no tension on the blade. The blade nope. actually wants to stay closed. And once you overcome that precipice, then the blade completes the action with minimal effort. Correct. Okay. So Correct. just now that we have that definition out in the yes. world. So we know. <laughs> by people who you listeners dub experts for some foolish reason. <laughs> I don't know. We just have microphones. <laughs> yeah. So his, his, uh, his last name, the gentleman's last name that was convicted was Berzueta, where a man carrying an assisted opening knife was charged with attempted criminal possession of a weapon in the fourth degree. The basis of the decision was made by interpreting Berezueta's assistant opening knife as a switchblade under the New York penal law definition. The New York penal law definition. What is that, you ask? Boy, you guys are smart. Let me tell you. <laughs> it's any knife which has a blade which opens automatically by hand pressure applied to a button, spring, or other device in the handle of the knife. The judge's decision decided that the stud on the knife blade was a button that you applied pressure to to open it up. Jim, now, can you can you just pull up Google okay. and type right, in the word go. button definition? Okay. Button. Hold on. I forgot the B. Button definition. There we go. And we have button. A small disc or knob sewn into All a right, garment. Let's go, let's go mechanical uh, button, not a garment a button. A knob on a piece of electrical electrical equipment that is pressed to operate it. There you go. Pressed. Pressed. Yeah. And so yep. this is more of a point of leverage. It's a stud. It's yeah. not a button. It's not a moving part. It has no mechanical release or function right. other than leverage uh, being applied. Yeah. The, the, the sorts of mental agility or not, maybe, maybe it's not enough mental agility. You lack, yeah. Yeah, lack of, you know, the applied here is absolutely astounding. Because Buttons are round. <laughs> <laughs> you press it right. as a leverage open. It's a button. Yeah, we can totally throw this guy under the bus. So Berzueta had appealed it, and it upheld the court with um with with a with a ruling of six to one against oh, him. Oh my god! And the only dissenting opinion was Judge Jenny Rivera offering a dissenting opinion as the sole resistance. She writes that the pictures of the knife admitted into evidence show that the button was on the blade, which, when the knife is closed, protrudes from the side of the handle. Flipping open and locking into place, the metal blade and the button on its surface remain separate from the handle when the knife is in use. Oh, there you go. So, Delineating right. the, the position of the button. So it's not like a fixed button that when you push it, something right. happens. Right, right, right. There's no like spring action with just yep. the button. It's just a stud. And it's like, and it's like I, I don't think that anything could have helped this guy because of where he was. However, they should have reached out to somebody that was a little bit more in the know. That's but, just, it's unfathomable. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a little ridiculous. In a press release today, Knife Rights took the issue with the decision, in particular, its dangerous disregard for the difference between an assisted opening knife and an automatic one. 
Quote, in addition to completely redefining what a knife's handle is, the court disregarded the fundamental difference in how the two types of knives operate, switchblades being automatic, an essential element of the definition, while assisted openers are not. That's right. I mean, it's just like small, basic, it's it's not, let me rephrase, massive mechanical differences between the two. Yeah. Uh, They're different things. And, and the court just decided to mental gymnastic flip-flop their way so that they were the same just to convict this guy because they don't like people carrying knives. Which is unbelievable. Yeah, I, yeah. I, just, I, I can't even... I'm speechless. Mm-hmm. I've, had, I've had several points flood through my mind against this as if they were spray-painted on train cars because I'm so <laughs> just flabbergasted at the right. idiocracy we are calling the judicial system when it comes to possession of a friggin' pocket knife. So, right. and, I, it, and it's not just like possession of a pocket knife. It's the mental gymnastics applied to it to get the to get the view that they want bending definitions and tailoring yeah. them when it's a mechanical this is a black and white thing push uh-huh. a button a knife comes out automatically that's a switchblade use a point of leverage to open a blade fixed to the blade with zero moving parts on the blade and all of a sense a switchblade also so and yeah. what it's also sets a dangerous precedent because it becomes case law now spring assisted knives right. in New York. now other people are referencing the case law to try to get to try to get a conviction because of you know it's, it's more fueled by their own bias right you know you know than anything so the case law that, that's established now is just pure confirmation bias not actually like understanding the thing that they're talking about <sighs> So-and-so said something over here, so it must be right. Yeah, I don't you know, know, man. Yeah, it, it's, it's, just, it's just frustrating. Infinitely frustrating. It's infinitely frustrating. Well, we do have even more somber news, even yet. Oh, yeah, this has been like a, a downward roller coaster. So yeah, it has been. I guess, uh, I guess, no. I, so this year has been rife with some pretty heavy hitters. Uh, Newt Martin of Martin Knives uh, passed away, lost his battle with leukemia in late February. I believe it was February 26th, if my memory serves correctly. Um, Newt was a hell of a knife maker and designer through Martin Knives. It was Newt, Ed, and then Hank also. And, and Hank's a friend of uh, our collective knife families as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you will probably recognize Newt's name for those of you guys who aren't deep in the custom world as he did a very successful collaboration with Boker Knives out of Germany uh, using one of his iconic hollow-handled knives. So Newt just did some amazing rambo style stuff but he had a great execution great fit and finish great material selection uh and just killer lines and designs he did these hollow handles he did a number of knives but i would say he was most famed for his hollow handle knives and they are really something to see uh the boker model is also something to see so if you can get your hands on one of the production boker models and just kind of see what this guy's all about it's worth delving into his history and and seeing what a maker and pillar of the community he was uh, in addition to that, this one mm-hmm. strikes even a little more close to home, maybe yeah. even a lot more close to home, both geographically and emotionally. Um, we lost Derek Bone of KnifeShipFree.com. And it was it entirely blew us away when it happened, too, because this was <clears throat> entirely out of the blue. And, yeah. and we understand that he passed peacefully, but it was exceedingly sudden. It was. And there was no warning for it whatsoever. And... And everybody was absolutely taken completely off their rails by it. It's just one day he was fine, and the next day he had spent his final moments. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Derek was actually in our shop on Friday, mm-hmm. and the following Monday evening, am I right yeah, on that? Yeah. Monday, yeah, Monday afternoon, Monday mm-hmm. evening, uh, he passed away. Uh, he was a victim of a brain aneurysm, and uh, it, the very 
kind of eerie post the evening before, uh, kind of cursing out his headache, so to speak. Yep. He's like, I had a headache, you know, dear headache, you suck. It, that, that's all it was. Yeah. And that's all it was. And if you, if you look back through that, through that post, if you were friends with Derek online, I mean, his, his Facebook profile is now in memoriam. Yeah. Which, which is great. We love that. We love that that happened. Um, you can see his final post and it is the most sad thing because, because it was just like, I wish we could go back to that moment and go, you need to get a CAT scan now, right now. Yeah, right. But and, I mean, who, who would have known, you know, so, um, very much, uh, it was a very, it was a devastating blow to all of us. Um, mm-hmm. so our condolences to both the Martin and bone families collectively, um, we wish you all a bunch of, uh, you know, the utmost strength and, and peace through all this. Cause it's definitely a tough one. So, yeah, everybody just, uh, if you want to chime in on Derek's page or on Newt's page, Newt's is in memoriam, too. If you want to chime in there and just send out some support. I know the family likes seeing that and likes to see the community give them, uh, you know, the credit that is definitely due to them. So, let's, uh, is that it for Knife News? All right, good. We're going to have a smoke break, and we'll be back in a flash for some history segment. Uh, Catch you guys in a minute. What's happening, gang? If you are listening to this episode in real time, it is approximately June 14th, which means, guess what? It's camping season. Kids are out of school. The weather is perfect. Everything is green and verdant out in the woods. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to take that little camp axe and you're going to run your butt into the woods and you're going to make a campfire with you and your family. Before you do that, the advantage is uncanny if you are able to take the time and be well-equipped enough to have a KME axe head sharpener on hand. Take that S-Wing, take that Grantsters Brooks, take that Holtz Brooks, take any of those axes, take an old US Plum or Collins axe or something like that. I mean, you can take any of those old axes that are probably rusting away in your garage right now, looking like hell warmed over, that couldn't cut, shave, chop to save their lives. It's basically a slightly sharper hammer at this point. Get yourself a KME axe sharpening system. They come in a sweet little pouch, very easy to transport, very small, and throw that convex edge on there. And I promise me, I promise you, you'll be throwing chips in no time. And better still, once you have confidence in that product, when you come back from your camping trip after using the living life out of your bushcraft knife, go ahead and slap it on the full KME knife sharpening system and tune it up, getting ready for the next family adventure. If you want to know about the entire depth and breadth of their products, please go to KMESharp.com. are back after a quick spirit break as Matt put it and we are totally cool now we have something really cool for you guys something that I don't think we've ever covered before we're covering western knife company company here we go we got I, was, I, I, I like my brain hung up you hate it when that happens where I was gonna say either western knives history or western knife company and it went western knife no, 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 not like a skipping CD. It's right? like, hang on, hang okay. on, it'll catch up. Oh my God. Oh, yeah, th- this this thing happened. I don't know if I told you, I was interviewed for the Dutch Brothers podcast. 
The coffee guys? No, no, oh. no, no. The, the oh, Dutch, the, the Dutch bushcraft, bushcraft guys. guys. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I was interviewed on their podcast, and you can search for them on iTunes. Um, I was interviewed for their podcast, and for the life of me, I had like the world's biggest ADD moments, where I was like in the middle of a tangent, and I was like, and I was like, how'd you predict? I'm sorry, guys. I forgot to take my medication this morning. I have no idea where I was coming with this. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and they were totally cool with it. And they made a joke about how that's usually them and how I stole it. And so it made them look really good. I'm like, uh, well, you guys awesome. can have that. That's yeah, fine. That's great. We, we turned it into a great big joke. It was a good time. Nice. But, but yeah, no, uh, yeah, you guys can definitely search for that. I totally forgot about it until just now. It would have been nice so, to tell your co-host. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I'm so good at this, you guys. You cheating on me, Jim? <laughs> uh, no, it was just the guest interview, Matt. It was just one time. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, Mr. Matt Martin will take it away with his amazing voice. Yeah, I'm just the guy who doesn't get any online interviews. I have to have my own show just so I can talk on the air, you know, (laughs) whatever. All right. Today we're going to be covering the Western Knife Company. Now, I might be wrong. I feel like we've covered this. Jim has searched and I trust his search ability nice. and he says we haven't covered it. All right, hold on. I so, will, I will no, we're you. just going to do it. I'm going to okay. do it. You're I'm going to do, do, okay. do it and if they hear it twice, maybe something will sink in. All right. <laughs> and if it's for the first time, awesome. Kids, this will be on the test. Yeah. So, review. Yeah. This, if we <laughs> ask you anything about Western, you better know it whether you've heard it once or twice. All right. The, this is according to Wikipedia, which is pretty heavily cited, and there is a great book out there called, I believe it's The Knife Makers Who Went West. I'm sure it's in the references. Hold the on. Knife Makers Who Went West. That is definitely uh, a book. The Knife Makers Who Went West. Boy, how do you like that? Uh, that was written... You know, I don't have the date on here. Anyways, that's a really good book, and I recommend you guys look into it, especially after I get done reading this history segment, because this is essentially, this Wikipedia article is going to whet your appetite. So, <laughs> whet. Okay, yeah. whet your appetite. Uh, Knife Makers Who Went West was made by Harvey Platts. You can find it on Amazon for 75 bucks. You guys want to learn some more about Harvey Platts? Let's do sure. it. Okay. The Western <laughs> Knife Company was a manufacturer of hunting knives, which began operations in Boulder, Colorado in 1896. The company is probably best known for its buoy. Here, I pronounce that buoy instead of the way I want to this pronounce is, it, which is Bowie. This is the correct pronunciation. Bowie. I think I'm just yeah. going to keep Bowie, though. I feel goofy <laughs> saying Bowie. I'm well, not going to lie. Well, it, you can, we, can, we, can we use the, like, the culture card? Can we flag the culture card and say yeah. like, our entire lives and our culture we've pronounced it Bowie? It's Boonics. <laughs> 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 yes. <laughs> That's what we're doing. So I you cannot judge my culture of Boonics and that Bowie knife. Bowie style hunting knives. The company was purchased by Coleman, the famous manufacturer of outdoor equipment, in nineteen eighty four. So uh, I know we broke it up a little bit, but they, they began operations in Boulder in 1896. And then Coleman, known for their lanterns and ice chests, bought the company in 1984. I was but three. Oh. Uh, Camillus Cutlery Company purchased Western in 1992. In February of 2007, Camillus closed as a result of bankruptcy due to the competition from companies making cheaper knives in other countries. That sounds a little speculative, but I mean, I, I, you could be you could be argued mismanagement of the business also you know yeah, what i mean yeah, not absolutely. rising to the occasion because there are plenty of u.s knife makers yeah well there are plenty of knife makers at the time that did just fine right yeah so yeah so anyway yeah. Uh, that's tangential and i'll get back on course the western brand and camillus brand are now owned by the acme united corporation and manufactured in asia do they also make anvils bombs, bombs? rockets <laughs> yeah oh <laughs> uh, yeah i can't wait to see a western bowie knife used in a bugs bunny cartoon <laughs> oh my goodness all right western cutlery company 
The Western Cutlery Company's story and that of several other manufacturers could begin in 1864, the year that Charles W. Platts emigrated from Sheffield, England. Platts was descended from a long line of knife makers, and in turn, his descendants were to have a significant impact upon a number of U.S. cutlery businesses. Platt's first employment in this country was the American Knife Company in Reynolds Bridge, Connecticut. A few years later, he became superintendent of the factory belonging to the Northfield Knife Company in the nearby town from which the company took its name. Charles and his wife, Sarah, reared five sons and each learned the cutlery craft in the Northfield Cutlery Firm. I wish I had five kids to work yeah. in the knife shop. I have one, and she draws amazing pictures of like animes and stuff like that and then listens to the worst music to ever come out come out on my speaker that's what she does around the shop uh, she does help a little bit when we with bagging and stuff and like you're that. a good father for letting your blast it over the shop speakers that's what we do we yeah. let her do right. you know let that's, her do her thing and that's cool she does help in shipping and receiving and anywhere that she can she does jump right and fall in line so i don't want to diminish my daughter's place in the shop but let's put it this way it's not a basketball team of knife makers okay so uh, let's see. Although other sons and their descendants remained active in the cutlery industry, the focus here is on Harvey Nixon Platts. H.N. Platts left Northfield in 1891 and moved west to Little Valley in Cataraugus County, New York. His experience led him to work in the blade grinding and finishing department of a new knife factory operated by Cataraugus Cutlery Company. Ooh. The company's early owners, J.B.F. Champlin and his son, Tint, how do you like to be settled with that handle? I, I, I shall name my son a shade of white. <laughs> Tint. <laughs> We're joined temporarily in the business by four brothers of Mrs. Champlin, formerly Teresa Case. Oh, the, so the plot it, thickens. It, it, it's so. It, I feel like I'm reading a Sherlock Holmes novel. Yeah, isn't there a Go fancy ahead. word for maiden name? What is it? You should know it. Uh, no, I don't know it. There is. Can, can we just say it's super K? No. No. Okay. okay. <laughs> get, get, get it right, Jim. <laughs> These Champlin brothers-in-law were W.R. Hang on. I'm going to stop there for dramatic pause. W.R. And also because I lost my space. Gene, John, and Andrew Case. So now there's the tie between Western and Case and Cataragus. Oh my God. So, I mean, oh. this is all of a sudden becoming a pretty big casting net if right. you look at what's yeah. going on. V and, Vader is over my shoulder right now. At last, the you, circle you, is complete. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> uh, so, also working in the Cataragus office was Debbie Case, who lived with her brother Russ and their father, W.R. Case, in 1892. H.N. Platts and Debbie Case were married. Within a couple of years, they had become parents of two sons, Harlow and Reginald. Charles Platt, still a respected cutlery leader, and his other sons re-entered the picture when they moved from Northfield to Little Valley in 1893 and began work with Cataragus. Practically every department of the Cataragus factory now had a Platt's family member at work, and the result would be nearly inevitable. They decided to start their own cutlery business. In 1896, Charles Platt's was joined by his five sons in forming the C. Platt's and Sons Cutlery Company in nearby Gowanda, New York. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. G-W-A-N-D-A? G-O, yeah. Oh, uh, Gowanda, yeah. yeah. Uh, which in 1887 moved to a new and larger facility in Eldred, Pennsylvania. In 1900, when Charles Platt's died, it was H.N. who assumed leadership of the family business. In addition, in addition to managerial responsibilities, H.N. served as the key salesman of Platt's cutlery products. Ever expanding to new territories, his sales trips took him farther west through several states and into the Midwestern Plains states. More than a few of Platt's sales trips were made in the ever-expanding, let's see, company of another cutlery salesman, brother-in-law, Russ Case. 
Platt would sell knives on the side of the town street while Case sold on the other side, each selling <laughs> knives branded with their own name. <laughs> so Competition, quote-unquote. So I, I want you guys to kind of digest that. I, I really yeah. want you to think about that because what has been laid forth in that little humorous anecdote mm-hmm. is actually analogous to what is going on right now. <laughs> I'm not kidding. No. Yeah, and it's totally so true. Yeah. with the same families by the way, guys, you know, I mean so it's uh <laughs> it's definitely worth looking into and doing a little bit of research, but right now there are several knife companies especially up in the New York area yep. that are selling knives on the left side of the road and the right side of the road with different names on them. And they come from the same source. So I just think it's kind of fascinating. <laughs> it doesn't really matter at the end of the day whether it's a uh, you know like a I'm not going to delve into this any further. You guys are going to have to do some research on it. But it's the same knife, same quality, everything's good. Anyways, just kind of interesting. Uh, let's see. A new company with J. Russell Case and H.N. Platts as organizers and major stockholders was to emerge from this family and working relationship. The early days of the business would see the company selling knives branded both Platts and Case. So choosing one family name was deemed logical because Russ Case would have sales responsibility while Platts would oversee manufacturing. The name Case was selected. Sometime earlier, Russ had begun a job... Begun a jobbing company known as W.R. Case and Sons. The new company, incorporated in 1904 in Little Valley, would have a similar name, except that an S would be added to the word son. Thereby, <laughs> oh, I, oh, okay, yeah, I gotcha. Thereby recognizing Platt's family membership as the W.R. Case son-in-law. Debbie Case Platt supervised the office and summer school vacations saw the two young Platt's boys working in the factory. Nice. H.N. Platt's health began to decline due to grinder's consumption, something we all know is going to take us someday. Uh, A disease of the lungs caused from years of work with the sandstone grinding wheels. Although the business was doing very well and the now teenage Platt's sons were becoming increasingly active in the business, the father's health hinged upon a move to a drier climate. 1911, the year of our pistol, he sold his interest in the company to Russ Case and moved his family to Boulder, Colorado. Accompanying Platts and his family to their new home was a determination to continue his lifetime work in the cutlery industry. Awesome. Next page. That's Boop. cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is a little throwback it's to like, third grade, guys. I was going to say, yeah. third grade just called. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the headphones being too big for my head. Of course, yeah. Of course, yeah. Don't you make these for children since you're supplying them to schools? <laughs> They're made out of like the vinyl of an old Buick or something right. like that. Yeah. <laughs> A developing West proved to be fertile ground for knife sales since the cowboys, farmers, miners, and other workers needed to qual- needed quality cutlery to use many times every day. Platts knew his business, and he certainly had experience in starting a cutlery factory, but he also recognized the need to establish a base of business if he was to be successful in starting all over again. His connections with Eastern cutlery manufacturers were important as he sought sources of product. Before the year 1911 was over, orders were being sold, and knives were arriving from the East to fill them. The new business was named Western States Cutlery and Manufacturing Company oh. because that looks so good on the Ricasso of a knife. Uh, <laughs> at least familiar. <laughs> right. Uh, hang on, I lost my space, my little editorial because I'm a jerk and idiot. Uh, Everybody's waiting. Right there we attention. go. The, the, the name was selected <laughs> instead of the founder's name because Platts had been used as a brand for the old company mentioned earlier and had very recently been used by Platts Brothers Cutlery Company operated by H.N. Platts Brothers. 
The geographical name was given to establish an identity separate from that of the Case and Platts businesses back east, and the state's extension of the name signified the company's sales territory. Early Western States knives were manufactured by Challenge, New York Knife Company, Valley Forge, Utica, W.R. Case and Sons, among others. Hmm. Although the business was prospering, a manufacturing facility would have been in order. It would be several years coming. World War I had begun and brought shortages of material and labor. It also required the services of the older son, Harlow, whose aid would have been needed for factory startup. Platt's dream was realized, however, with the opening of his new factory in 1920. Oh, uh, I'm sorry, I read that incorrectly. Platt's dream was realized, however, with the opening of his new factory in 1920. In the early 1940s, H.N. retired from active management of Western States cutlery, and those responsibilities were passed on to his sons, Reginald and Harlow, who continued in partnership until Reginald left the cutlery business in 1950. A new name, Western Cutlery Company, was given the business in 1951 when Harlow Platt's and his son Harvey reincorporated the company. Western Cutler remained in Boulder until its 1978 relocation to nearby bum, bum, Longmont, Colorado. That's the town <laughs> I moved from when I moved to Gladstone, Michigan. I, Jenna mm-hmm. and my daughter and I all lived in Longmont. Uh, and Ashley, actually the girl who works at our shop, she lived, also, also lived in Longmont. Oh, her mom that. lived in Longmont. She lived in Bertha, the next gotcha. like, burg right over. Gotcha. Like, I probably could have pieced that together. I just didn't constructively know. Yeah, pretty yeah, crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Western ended in Longmont. We began in Longmont. That's where Vima and mm-hmm. I started. And then we moved up here to be closer to Webster Marbles. Dirt. <laughs> the uh, spirits of Webster's. That's you. right. Yeah. Harvey Platts mm-hmm. become company president continued in that capacity until 1984 when Western was purchased by the Crossman Airgun Division of Coleman Corporation, huh. thus ending the more than 100-year involvement of the Platts family in the U.S. cutlery industry. The association with Coleman lasted until 1990 when an investor group in Wyoming purchased the knife factory and trademarks. Unable to obtain satisfactory profit performance, welcome to the knife business, the company's brands, <laughs> machinery, and tooling were sold to Camilla's Cutlery Company in 1991, Ooh. and many parts yeah papers and other items were dispersed at auction um camilla's cutlery closed its doors on february 2007 leaving the future of western cutlery and the company's other brands in limbo so funny story about this that i'm yeah. just make another aside sure. i rarely talk about like our shop and stuff on the radio but i was able to purchase from a camilla's uh a guy who got it from the camilla's auction basically right okay. i got sure. their their nickel silver pin stock oh. i buy it by the oh. pound it's like yeah. I, I can get more of it as i go and I always buy it by the pound. So anytime you see like a vehement knife that has a brass guard with nickel silver pins, mm-hmm. those came from Camilla's. That's awesome. And they That's made, cool. yeah, I don't know yeah. if they ever use those pins on any Western knives, but right. by, I don't know how you would put that. It was that. part of the inventory. Yeah, it was part of their inventory. Right, yeah, yeah, reason, so who yeah. knows how deep they go yeah. or how old they were or whatever, but I still have them all taped up. I, I use them on all our knives. How big are the pins? Uh, like, three thirty seconds. Three thirty seconds? Yeah. Uh, were they, were they, were they those, um, the pommel pins? Like, uh, like how everything was squished down over the pommel and then the You know, I think they did through. stainless or aluminum on that. I think that was yeah. from Camillo's from their folder division, maybe. Oh, okay. And that so, makes more you know, sense. I would think it was something like that. Seconds. I don't think it I don't think it came from Western. Mm-hmm. Maybe it did, but I don't think so. And so I it was just kind of interesting when they closed They're like everything got sold at auction. Well, that still happens, you know, yeah. and, and and I got some of that. Right. <laughs> you know? Kind of cool. Yeah, it's uh, pretty slick. Um, excuse me, I like this. No, it's it's uh we, we did something similar at Bark River with um the Schrade the Schrade selling off of Marbles inventory. Yes, we we got we got it was it was it was a couple of grand for a pallet load of of 
woodcraft wow. and trail maker parts. No oh. blades, but it's leather spacers, leather. Uh, oh, leather I think I've, I've taken some from you guys. You have. I think, I think <laughs> I've given you bags at a time. Right. Yeah. We, that's we right. have we have like twenty thousand leather spacers. No joke. You know, from from some from some of that stuff. And so, that's so, cool. Old like happens. twelve yeah. ounce hide. Oh yeah, like, it's massive. We're talking like extinct cows that don't have skin this thick anymore. Yeah. Right. So it's it's yeah. a crazy. So you want to describe that because this is so fascinating. Oh god. To me. Yeah. Yeah. This whole this whole thing. Okay. So so. Back, like, the most recent that I can think of, other than marbles, would be blackjack. Okay. So blackjack knives in Illinois, out of Effingham, had... If you counted the leather spacers on a 1-7, your counts would be, like, 14, 15 leather spacers. No kidding. Because everything was, like, 12, 14-ounce leather. We're talking, like... We're talking, like, three-quarters of a centimeter. Right. You know? Or 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 three-quarters of... No. Yeah. No, that's about right. Three-quarters of a centimeter. Almost a centimeter thick. Yeah, almost a centimeter thick. So, so the demand for that leather has caused that leather to become extinct in the leather marketplace because the demand is so high for leather that cows don't grow skin that thick anymore before they're harvested. They're, har- they're harvesting them prematurely to meet demand because they just need right. leather. They yeah. just need leather. So, so that rose the price of 10, 12, you know, all the way down to 3, 4. I, I imagine there's a 2, 3 out there as well. Maybe that's skived, but but uh, yeah, yeah. The, those those old westerns, the uh, old marbles, I think were the same way. Yep. Blackjacks um, from the Effingham era, and uh, actually, actually, the ones that the ones that we're making now for for the owner of Blackjack Knives are still working off of that old Blackjack Leatherstock inventory. I mean, I think I played in them. I think I played in those boxes of leathers when I was like seven. Right. We, yeah. We, we had like something like a half a million of these, like literally a half a million of these spacers, and all of them are super huge and thick. And you cannot get you them today. You so can't get it in that thick anymore at all. That's uh, something to appreciate, yeah. guys, as collectors. So as you're as you're inspecting your knife and as you're scrutinizing it, <clears throat> you're actually holding a piece of history, even in a contemporary knife, because these parts and pieces have changed hands. Some stuff just plain isn't available anymore. Yeah. We can't like antique ivory it's, micarta is is one oh, of those things yeah. in in our era. We've watched it leave. Yep. It's yep. gone we now. We watched it come, gain in popularity, and then be litigated out of existence. Goodbye. So, Goodbye. yeah, yep. it's kind of interesting. And as you guys get stuff, there's something to look at. You can drop, you know, your glasses down to the tip of your nose and kind of inspect and go, look how thick these washers are. These are from cows from 40 years ago, <laughs> and they don't grow them like that anymore. No, yeah, they, they, don't. Uh, they don't. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's just small stuff like that affecting affects everybody's life, and and it's just... It's absolutely cool. I mean, it's like, it's a proud, I'm proud to be a part of this history that's ever changing and ongoing. And I hope you guys are too. That's really cool. Yeah, it is cool. It's awesome. And we appreciate you guys kind of riding along as we recount these little tales just from our personal anecdotal experience. You know what I mean? It's kind of neat. So I'm going to go into, uh, I'm not going to, yeah, you know what? I am. I'm going to go ahead and read this part because it is interesting. It's a little bit of a visual gag, but maybe it'll inspire you when the podcast is over to just do some looking around, do some image searches at some old Western knives and see if you can uh, put this together. So this is the the stamping uh, convention that they use. Oh, so yeah, the naming cool. convention cool, on cool, the cool. blades. I love this. I'm addicted to the case one. I don't. I have, oh, no, yeah, I have no idea why. Well, it's, it's like so a little important. puzzle, like a little decoder too. ring. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's cool. So All right. Yeah. Early Western States knives had tangs stamped with the words Western States in an arch and Boulder, Colorado in a straight line below, similar to stamp used by C. Platts and Sons. Pocket knife tags were stamped with the curved Western States until about 1950 when Western Boulder, Colorado was adapted. 
Westaco was a budget price brand that put the name like that. It better be. It was a budget <laughs> price brand that seemed to have appeared in the 1930s. Westmark was a brand used on high end products that first appeared in 1970. In addition to stamped tangs, many early knives had trademark etching on the blade. The company's best known mark was a tic-tac-toe pattern and the words sharp tested temper were used beginning in 1911. In 1928, the buffalo trademark consisting of an old buffalo skull framed with western states and sharp cutlery was adopted and gradually replaced the tic-tac-toe marking. The dagger and diamond logo that appeared on later western products was first used in 1963. Tang stamps on pocket knives as well as sheath knives were gradually changed uh, to Western USA during the 60s. Beginning in 1978 nice. mm-hmm. and continuing until the mid-1980s, the stamp Western USA was used with a letter added beneath the USA to indicate the production year. So here it goes Super into cool. the letters, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you just a quick run-through. If you want reference material, then go to uh, the Western Knife Company on Wikipedia. But it's going to be, for 1977, it's going to be A as in Alpha, 78 is going to be Bravo, 79, Charlie. You can kind of see where this is going because it goes in numerical order according to the letter. But it starts <laughs> in 77 with Alpha, and it's going to end Juliet, 1986. So okay. that's as far as it gets in the article. So. Okay, so so what what is the convention? 70, 70, was it 77, 76? Started with Alpha. What was the next 70, one? 77 was Alpha. 78 okay. was Bravo. 79 Bravo. Oh, okay. was Charlie. Yeah, oh, okay, so okay. I mean, gotcha, yeah, gotcha, you gotcha, see how it's okay. adding up. Yeah, yep, so yep, from yep. 77 to 86, it goes in Alpha... Order right, yeah, A B C D E F G H I J. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what, what is that called? That, that there's a name for that. Well, alphanumeric would be that would be letters and numbers. So I don't alphabet sequential. I don't know. Is there a name for that? Yeah, there's a name for that. It's it's a it's a it's a type of communication. It's a type of communication like a like a yeah Bravo Bravo Foxtrot. Oh, that's your phonetic alphabet. Right. right. Is that, is that what that's that, called? That's your phonetic alphabet. Is, is that that, I was just using that for okay. radio, well, no, but yeah. No, I think I think it has a lot to do with broadcasting and how and how uh, military communication. Has and, and people are out there right now. They're screaming, screaming at the radio. Yeah, at, yeah, it's called this, you yeah. morons. And I apologize, we're morons. But, Alpha Bravo Charlie Delta, like that. Yeah, that's your phonetic yeah. alphabet. That's what they call that. Now, it's what that, the okay. or, what the progression order is of yeah. letters, I don't know. Yeah, there there is a like a like there's L is Lima. Yep. and and the, that whole thing. There's a name for that. And I can't yeah, remember that name. That name is the phonetic alphabet. Okay, so yeah. I'm an idiot. Yeah, they're screaming Wait, at I'm you, Jim. That. They're I'm yelling at you. Okay. <laughs> I'm fine with being an idiot. <laughs> I, I can recover if I'm the idiot. I have a harder time recovering if other people are the idiot and I have to suffer. That's what that. it's called. Yeah. Okay, so I'm sorry for making you guys suffer my idiocy. My bad. I can't wait to read the emails on this one. Yeah. Who is your co-host? <laughs> Does he no, do anything? No, it's okay. Honest okay. mistake. You just got to oil the joints a little bit, guys. We're a little bit rusty. And we're keeping it. It's a good gag. So. All right. So here we go. Let's finish this up. We're almost done with the history segment. Then we're on to the Q&As. During the 1980s, stampings began to include the model number, a trend that continued under Camillus' ownership. They spelled Camillus with two S's, and it looks kind of pejorative, I think. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is it Camillus? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the Coleman era, 1984 to 1990, saw the use of some Coleman Western stamps, as well as Coleman Western markings on the retaining strap buttons of the knife sheaths. Identifying Western States' pocket knives, Western States' early knives... That's weird. They did that in all caps, as if it was the beginning of another segment. It was in the middle of a uh, paragraph. Interesting. Western states' early knives follow the traditional numbering system of a pattern number, along with letters and other numbers that describe the knife's features. Unfortunately, the number si- numbering system was an internal protocol for employees, and pattern numbers were not marked on the company's products until 1954. 
the Camillus, with Camillus now out of business, much of that inside company information has been lost. Collectors today must identify early pocket or early knives from catalogs and application of the numbering system. Most of the old stock numbers can be deciphered by using the numbering key explained below. Some older pocket knife cool. numbers have a zero inserted just before the pattern number to signify a modification, usually in material finish, such as the 9393 or 93093. The first digit, this is cool, guys. So to me, this is neat. And it's referenced yeah. that you'll probably have to have in a notebook uh, to get it memorized or have print out this sheet or something like that. But when you go to flea markets, when you go to swap meets, when you go to yard sales mm -hmm. or estate sales uh, and you find these old knives, you should be able to look at it and be like, ooh, that says Western States. That's right. an older knife than one yeah. that says Western USA. You right. know what I mean? And you can uh, observe its value and that'll determine whether or not it's a cost-effective purchase at five or twenty dollars or whatever it is. Right. You know, the yard. Western at five or twenty bucks. It's still pretty good. Grab it. Yeah. yeah, yeah grab, grab it. it. Yeah. yeah. All day. The yeah. first digit signifies handle material as follows: two is imitation pearl, three is brown or golden shell, four white or imitation ivory, five genuine stag. So be on the lookout for Ooh. those. Six is bone stag, seven ivory or agate, and eight is genuine pearl. So there you go. So there's there's the handle material significance. So uh, five being genuine stag in my mind would be the most desirable. Yep, if, especially if it's a really nice piece. Yeah, oh, yeah of course, absolutely. Yeah. I, I bet the, the the bone stag is jigged. Mm -hmm. You know, similar similar to how they you know the, the big rollers with the with the jig pattern on it and the the, it, the bone is rolled through the, the pattern. yeah. I, so they're all the same, right? They're yeah. all the same. Yep. Okay. And some companies hand jig. They have jiggers. Do they? Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah, that. so they go through and they carve them. Just, just they... do something. Yeah, right? I, I want to see even Great Eastern does that. I and I don't do hold they? me okay. to that. I think of their Cougar Claw because mm -hmm. they're all pretty unique. I think they go through and they hand jig it with, okay. uh, um, you know, some kind of rotary yeah, tool. Yeah, I, I know. Knife. I know Great Eastern or, or and Queen both. I think have like the big rollers that they just take the they take the slabs and just put them on like the chain link roller thing. Yeah, and then they just crank it through and it just patterns them I, all. I think that's for yeah. the the stag look. Yeah, but they have some like the Cougar Clawed bone is more of like a custom fit. And so I don't know okay. if they roll that or if they hand jig that one, but yeah, I mean, there are people that can do it, but yeah, oh, that, yeah, I had no that's idea. Neat. Yeah, yeah. Super cool. stuff. Cool. um, and that's it guys. That is our history segment. And to me, I thought it was fascinating. And I think the reason it seems so familiar is, well, I'm a knife nerd guys. First and foremost, <laughs> I think I actually read this on my own time, maybe even before we formed the podcast. So <laughs> and your brain's going, I've seen this information yeah, before. Yeah. It must've been on the podcast. The words of Yogi Berra. It's like deja vu all over again. So there you go. We will be back in a flash with your questions and answers. Stay tuned. Guys, Jim Stewart here from Behind the Blade Podcast. I want to tell you guys about GendaIndustries.com, J-E-N-D-E Industries.com, and B. Thomas Blodgett have some of the finest knife sharpening stuff on the planet, introducing their new, their newest product called the Poly Diamond Emulsion. They're the highly, highest quality emulsions on the market. They're custom formulated to their specifications, making them fast and effective, especially on their custom nanocloth that they put out. And, and their nanocloth, you can buy the entire gamut of different colors. What's the difference between the colors? Nothing, because it's all the same nanocloth. Those colors are there for you, my friends, to match to the bottles of poly diamond emulsion that you'll be getting. And the Genda poly diamond emulsion come in easy to use seven milliliter bottles. To use it, you simply pump the desired amount of emulsion onto your nanocloth or kangaroo's drop or just regular cowhide, whatever your heart desires, onto your medium spread evenly, let it dry, and then use as usual the following grits. 
4 micron, 2 micron, 1 micron, half micron, quarter micron, tenth micron, and 0 0.025 micron, ranging from 4,000 grit to 600,000 grit. Good lord, that's a lot of microns! Thanks, <laughs> Mama Mayburn. <laughs> We're gonna, uh, that you guys can find that here on GendaIndustries.com. We love these guys, we know you will too. Check them out and make sure you tell them that Behind the Blade sent you. are back and Mr. Jim Stewart is going to lay your questions on us and we will try to return fire with accurate yet humorous answers. <laughs> As I always say, I love this segment. It's it's low workload for us. Yes. It is the most fun. It's probably the most, I'd say, diversified and creative kind of kind, kind of kind of segment and it's directly from you guys and we love you guys. We have the best listeners in the world. If you guys wants to get in on some of this action. If you're like a new listener or something, you could find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Behind the Blade Podcast, and our group, Behind the Blade Trench Crew, Trench crew. that you can find. Make sure you answer the questions. So far, Gilbert Gottfried is winning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if you join the group, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's a little bit of an inside <laughs> joke for the Trench Crew. <laughs> That's awesome. We actually need to up presence in there too. I've been trying to answer some questions and whatnot. It's just been crazy leading up to the Freight of Blade. and It was just... Oh my God. If you guys follow VM at Knives, you guys will know what we went through just to get to Atlanta. <laughs> so oh, let's see about 20 blades late from heat treat, yep. one dead deer on the side of the road yep. and a dead headlight. Yeah, I understand. And a yep. busted headlight. Yeah. <laughs> so it was good. And about 400 Miller lights later, here we are. <laughs> All right. So first question for Mr. Matt Martin, is there anything, oh, I'm sorry. From Phil Remington. Phil. Uh, Matt. Is there anything that you stumbled upon at Blade that piqued your interest or curiosity? Ah, I tell you what, I, I was, I, I'm not much of a contemporary knife collector, but in going table to table to table, I was like, oh my god, I could blow everything I just earned in about four minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there yeah. were some amazing uh -huh. knives out there, but I would say going back to our, I think we did it in the uh, "What Are You Carrying" segment today. Mm -hmm. Going back to that, excuse my yard. Pardon me. We need a cough button. Uh, <laughs> just starts playing carnival music yeah, or something. Exactly. Like you just mute it while I yawn or cough or sniffle. Um, I, Canterbury's lineup, I thought I really liked it. The Pathfinder Knife Shop, and, and he didn't give me the knife. I paid full price for the knife. He didn't give me any kickbacks or anything. So this is not like a sponsored spot. Um, I just, I thought it was neat. And I thought meeting uh, who I respect as an expert in the field of being in the field, uh, when I saw his knives, I thought they were practical, and I got super excited about them. Um, another thing was Red Meat Knives, uh, owned and operated by Eli Miller. Oh, you posted that on your on the syndicate. Uh, Jenna did. Jenna did. Yeah, okay, Jenna, Jenna did. did. Yeah, yeah, I she, saw that. Yeah, this guy is, uh, he does some pretty crazy, or he did in a past life, man. He still dabbles in a little bit, some pretty high-speed stuff. He does a lot of... Um, uh, what would you call it? Medical response in hot areas. Huh. And so cool. I guess it'd be the best way to put it. And he's worked for a number of different people and stuff like that. But Eli is also a pig farmer. Um, <laughs> and in doing that, he is, uh, what makes it interesting is he has a ranch of kosher pigs. Nice. I guess he found a breed of pig that doesn't have a cloven hoof to meet uh, oh, uh, yeah, my, my, Jewish my... protocol, kosher protocol. Right, yeah. right. Uh, hold on. My, my brain skipped. Yeah. Okay. 
Go ahead. Kosher Continue. pigs. Yeah, kosher. yeah, okay. yeah. so Go pretty ahead. wild, but he's also a knife maker. And my wife, Jenna, she was able to pick up a one of his kitchen knives. And the first day she got it home, as soon as we got home from plate, she made spaghetti. And she was slicing onions so thin you could read through them. And so, <laughs> I mean, just little, like, sheets of paper of onions. So I was really impressed with that knife. She is obviously very impressed with it. But after seeing the performance, I was like, yeah, this is killer. So go check out Red Meat Blades or Red Meat Knives. I'm sorry, Eli, for botching this. But you'll be able to find him, Eli Miller. Um, SEO is a great thing. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, they'll mm-hmm. figure it out for you. Google will figure this out for you. It'll pick <laughs> up my Slack. So there was stuff like that. Uh, honestly, though, I spend most of my time in the rusty old knife section. And that's what I did. <laughs> I came home with a Gerber yeah. Mark II for myself. And so, yeah, that was... <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. Man. No. Yeah, no, yeah. not at all. That's about it. All right. So next question from uh, Brian Newberry. He's got a se- He's got several questions here. Uh, so he says, feel free to pick and choose the ones you want to address, but I'll uh, go ahead and just throw them out there. They all look good to are. me too. Yeah, yeah. As they are. We'll both, we'll both chime in, I'm sure. After I click see more. Okay. <clears throat> what are your favorite kitchen knife designs to make and then to use? So I'm guessing he's delineating between ones that are good to make and then ones that are just practical for our hands in the kitchen. Um... Do you have a position on wood versus plastic? Well, let's, let's, let's knock out the okay. kitchen knife yeah, one. Yeah, and that's good. all you, Jim, because okay. I neither a make kitchen knives and I certainly don't use them guys. Right. I am like a culinary specialist <laughs> at cereal and cereal alone. <laughs> all right. So, so I'm going to go ahead and start with, with me for, to just use, I like an eight inch French chef's knife with the point on the tip and just that classic style because that's what I know how to use. All right, just just flat out, just that. It's super. It's super versatile. You can use it for everything. You can use it for meat, chicken, fish, vegetables. It's it's a knife that you use in the kitchen to get stuff done, and then it's done. So that's just like the practicality aspect of it. To make any sort of Japanese cutlery in for the kitchen, any any one of those because for me, of its complexity, because of its complexity and diverse and diversity. You've got there's a difference between the oval handles versus the D versus the Wa handles, and. Uh, and, and the different seals to use, fitting a ferrule, you know, milling it out perfectly and then hand filing it to fit um, the, the, the actual type of construction where the, where, the, where the pin goes that anchors everything together. For some reason, and I have no idea why, I love the look of the Japanese kitchen knives. There just, you go. Just love them. Like, well, they're, like, they're, they're elegant and precise, man. Absolutely. You know? the, 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 uh, the Usagi Bocho is different than the Unagi Bocho, which is different than the Sentuko, which is different than the... And all of them have... It's Japanese, right? So everything has its own specific use. Very specialized. Very specialized use. I mean, like, there's the tuna sword, which is basically, like, the size of a katana, but it's meant for just cutting up huge fish. Awesome. And, and just for that. I mean, I'd love, to, I'd love to dive into that and make some of that stuff. Um, and each one has, like, their own quirks on how to make them. Like... Like a D handle, you can make on the knife. An oval handle, you can make on the knife. But a Y handle, which is an octagon, basically, you can't make on the knife. It has to be made you, separate you, and applied. You, right, yeah. you have to make it entirely separate and, and then very carefully get the epoxy in there and then and then slide the blade in and drop your pin very carefully. I just I just enjoy it. And the grinds are different. Um, the, like the Usagi Bocho's grind is basically a chisel grind. Like it goes from it goes from the left, the right side of the knife, all the way over to the left. Oh wow! In one just giant flat grind, and then the back, of, and then the back of it is actually hollow ground. Oh, okay, just yeah, yeah like from from edge to spine, from edge to full. spine. Think forty-two inch hollow grind. Wow! Just this massive hollow grind, and that is and that is to push the edge off, which is a little bit like a kamasori, which I've covered too. It's, okay, it's pretty yeah, much yeah. the same way. Then it's just so you get the work on the very finest edge. That's cool. You know, and it's so you can take lay it on a cucumber and just roll out the entire cucumber all the way down in just one giant sheet of paper cucumber. Fifty yep. yards of cucumber. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. So, so it's like the practical application for me 
isn't so practical. It's just, it's just the, it, 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 I guess it's not even the history. It's just, this is cool. And that, that's kind of where I come from on that. It's the so, art of making an instrument more than a tool. I would say yeah, that, that yeah. Tet lends more to instrument than yeah, tool. And, and, and I guess, and I guess I can, I can take that position as a maker, yeah. you know, cause yeah. I can completely appreciate the construction of it and behind it. I've done a few and they're awesome. They're good. That's it's cool. just a good time. Yeah. So, um, okay. Next one. I'll let you, I'll let you take this one, man. Do you have a position on the wood versus plastic cutting board choice? Oh, plastic. I'm sorry. Plastic. I almost said plastic. <laughs> I, yeah, please. No wood. I, I'm all about the wood. I'm all about end grain wood. That's what we use in our home exclusively. Actually, one of my dear friends, Jim McLaughlin, sent me this beautiful. Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy Mac. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> he sent me this beautiful. He sent several. Uh, some of the cheese boards are obviously uh, axial grains. So I mean, it's the length of the the board, and that's how you cut your cheese and stuff like that on. Uh, or your like little meats and sausages and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Uh, we have like a pizza one that's a rolling cutter, so it's not that big of a deal, but it's big, wide with a big handle. We use these entertaining all the time. But the one that gets barred on the most use in my house is end grain. And I think it's Purple Heart and. Oh, is it Babinga or something like it, that? It's something like that. Yeah. Cause, cause, because uh, Mr. McLaughlin very graciously made me one as well. And, Do and you use yours a lot? I mean, all the time. Yeah. All the time, and you can present on it, and it's just as functional as it is as it is good looking, striking. It's so, absolutely cool. So, I mean, when it comes down to that, I don't see it putting any more wear on our knife than a plastic sheet of dubious origin. I don't know what contaminants are in there. I don't know what their sand content is, I, and honestly, I don't care. Mm-hmm. If I get the opportunity to have hundred year old wood in a classic design and a classic attractive pattern, and it doesn't adversely affect my knives, why? on earth would I want to put a piece of Delrin that I bought at Walmart on my counter and use that? Yeah. Almost, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, what would, what would that be considered to like, like you've got a Ferrari and you need to reupholster the seats. So you go to Joanne fabrics and pick up a herringbone. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because it was on sale. Yeah. You know, I, it's, I it's, just, you know, there's just, there's no, it's a really complicated analogy. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I can't think of anything analogous. <laughs> I just know that in my home, the way we display things and the pride of ownership that it was made by a craftsman and not squirted out by a machine in Asia, you know, there's just something mm-hmm. to that. Now I have lots of products that I love made by craftsmen in Asia. So that's not a shot on them. I'm just saying that, you get the point. So, all right, next question. All right, next question. Um, what is your most satisfying knife use experience you have had? Like cool. satisfying, and he he goes on to say that his was cutting through a line of water bottles on his first try. Well, that's pretty good. And then that was pretty good. I, I did that too. I did it with a barong because I'm short. Oh, yeah, go, go. I'm not I'm not Donovan Phillips. Right. I'm not I'm not a big dude. Um, I used a barong and I cut through six water bottles in one swing. I did I was six with a one on oneer. Oh, nice. Yeah, I just cool. I, was yeah. I got a little video. Um, what's your most gratifying? What is yours? Uh, uh, oh. And can I copy it? <laughs> <laughs> it was probably the first time I made, um, I said, I cut down one tree and I made a tripod out of it and a figure four trap with the top of it. So oh, I nice. made like, like, I cut it roughly in half. And then I made a tripod out of the thicker stems. And then the rest of it, I delimbed and made a figure four trap out of. That's pretty cool. And then set up a deadfall trap. And it was all in the space of like three hours. That's cool. You know I mean? Like I'd taken my time just having, just like sitting out. I think it was at either at a camp in when we used to do the camp in yeah. or it was at PWIP when I did it. Cool. But it was a good time. It was a good time. Uh, I, I got, I have one and oh, not okay. because it's that amazing, but because it's the one that sticks out in my mind. So I guess in retrospect, it's mm-hmm. kind of amazing to me. So my very first taper tang knife that I hollow ground with the KMG was brand new. This was in our first shop. I had made it out of a file and I, 
grew to kind of hate the knife. It's got like uh, Brazilian rosewood handles on it. I still have it. This, I still have <laughs> nice, it. Nice, nice. And I grew to hate the knife. And so I went in the backyard and we had a throwing range just like we do here at headquarters. I've always had knife throwing ranges in the backyard. And I'm like, I'm going to break this thing. I said, mm-hmm. this is a piece of crap knife. It's not, it has no, there's no merit to the steel whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I was kind of snobbing myself, right? if that makes sense. <laughs> and I don't even think I drew it back. I may have, but I don't think I, I tempered it really at all. Right. So I go in the back and there's this huge lump of a log, like a root ball with some really hard, you know, it's just, it's not punky. It's not like rock maple, but it was like solid wood. And I said, I'm going to break the tip off this because it was thinly hollow ground. And I mm-hmm. said, this is a useless knife. So I hammered it into the, the wood and I bent laterally trying to break the tip and plugs of wood kept popping out. And so I did this probably a dozen (laughs) times just trying to break the tip. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, well F this, I'm going to take it to the throwing range and I'm going to see if it throws. And Uh so I threw with it and I stuck it seven out of seven times. Now I'm not that great of a knife thrower. This just happened to work seven out of seven times. This thing stuck. And I said, okay, well, at least it's a file. I know I can shower sparks from a piece of flint with it. So I started a piece of char cloth by using the spine of the knife on a piece of flint. And then I made feather sticks with it. And I'm like, you know what? This knife isn't that bad. <laughs> you did more yeah. with a knife that you thought was garbage and I, than most people do in their lives with premium knives. And I did it all That's in the awesome. backyard. Like It wasn't like this big Rambo experience. I was just like, I hate this knife. I want to destroy it. And I still have the bastard in my case right now. That's and awesome. So, yeah. That's, okay. Yeah, I think you win for satisfaction. It was just, so that yeah, was that's a, good. It was, I was actually disappointed because my hypothesis was so far off. So that's why it didn't stand out as satisfying, but in retrospect, satisfying. You know, right. right, right. It was a good experience. Yes. Yes. All right. Oh, okay. Um, from, uh, from, thank you. That was Brian Newberry, by the way. I don't think I said his name. Thank you, Brian. Great thank question. Thank you for the question, sir. All right. From Dan Schwiemann Jr. When using sharpening stones, is it truly better to use a lubricant such as water or oil or to simply sharpen dry? I, it depends on the stones. Yeah, it right. I mean, you're the, the, the resident sharpening um, guy. So. I, whenever I freehand sharpen on uh, Japanese naturals, or um, or the the the, shape, the shaped in pro glass stones that I have for razors, I always use water because it's a smoother glide, and then the water itself like cleans the swarf off. Okay, and it's a I good indicator for it's, swarf. You're right. Swarf. <laughs> it's almost like it's almost like a he's my science engineer on <laughs> on, on, on Star Trek. Um, that's probably wrong. I've got Star Trek. Bad Star Trek emails now. Oh um, no! <laughs> so um, so so I like using water for that stuff because because it just it keeps it clean, keeps it dry. Uh, I guess I guess you could argue that it keeps it cool, but I don't really think you're applying enough pressure to generate the heat. That would <laughs> easy there, Lou Ferrigno. Seriously, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> you ever overheat a blade by pressing it to a wet rock? <laughs> Good God. Lou Ferrigno does. <laughs> yeah. You funny. wouldn't like me when I'm sharpening. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah um, but I prefer water. Um, on water stones. On water stones, okay. yes. On water stones. Um, if you've got a KME, I doubt that you're using water, but you're also using probably diamond stones. Yeah. The diamond stones. The, the diamond stones, you don't need it because there's a lot of space between each diamond particle. And it tends to just kind of brush all off on the knife. And if you really want to, you take your you take your paper towel and you wipe your blade off. And you keep on going, or you rinse it in yeah. the sink. I've done that too. Like take the whole thing, just put it in the sink. I'm like, all right, all the crap is off. Back to work. Not for the and, sake of lubrication, but for the safe, sake of cleaning out the pores. Oh yeah, so you can see it. I mean, like and you, you get a better sharpening because you don't have any metal shavings in the way right. or anything. You just get a better grip pattern. Now, so, ceramics? Um, ceramics, I like to use water. 
Do you really? Yeah. You I freak. Like to, I like to use water. Uh, you it, freak. It, like, for some reason, for me, it's like wet sanding. You know, I just like it's just like it sticks in my mind that it works better that way. Oh. I know. I know. I, oh. I, I know. I know. I know. You're like because because it, it's not just you that's told me that I'm crazy for doing that. There's other people <laughs> that have had like Spyderco sharp makers that have, yeah. that have been like. My Spyderco sharp maker has never seen a drop of water. Who are you? Yeah, yeah exactly. And- <laughs> Good God. He does get knives pretty sharp, though. So, I mean, you know, I so mean, there you go, Dan. It's it's entirely possible that it's totally psychosomatic on my part. I think but- it is entirely possible. <laughs> <laughs> In your profession, yeah. you know. So, okay, we'll go on to the next one. All right. <laughs> Andrew Riley, what is best in life? Jim, will you please do the honors? <laughs> to crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentations of the women. <laughs> yeah, I do the campy Arnold. <laughs> I think it was fantastic. Okay, all right. Fantastic. <laughs> Tom Pucci, need vehement and Barkover folder updates. Well, you know, just keep on watching. Yeah, they'll uh, come. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, will Jim be carrying his ULB? Answer: No. Not today, no. folks. He says. He says. Answer: Dot. 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 Yes. I'm not not carrying it today. I am trying to branch out because I've recognized that I need to branch out because I've carried the same freaking knife for five years. So much that it's mentioned in questions. Right. Yeah. So much that it's mentioned in questions tells me like it reaffirms my decision to stop carrying the ULB so and start diverse. carrying nearly everything else. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I didn't see this one. <laughs> what does Marcellus Wallace look like? I can tell you what he doesn't look like, but not on the air. There are kids listening. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, where are we at? Oh, we gotta go. We're out of time. That that is a podcast. Thank Woo. you. It is so good to be back. We will see you guys soon. Wait, you will hear us guys soon in episode 30. Looking forward to it. Maybe you will see us too. Maybe we'll get our video stuff sorted out. So yeah. here's to open. Thanks for sticking with us. And I thought we had a closing line, but I guess I don't. Yeah, that's it. All right. Yeah. Bye.